0: The Second Crusade has failed, but its end will open the door to the Plantagenets, that brilliant, avaricious, rebellious, murderous family that will dominate the history of Western Europe for a century to come. Here's their story, so riveting that we still are fascinated by it 900 years later. Welcome back to Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett. And I want to tell you a story, an epic, true story, of five kings and the Lion Queen. Season 2, Episode 8, The Heavenly Stars Align. It's the year 1158, and we return to Thomas Beckett's triumphant entry into Louis Capet's Paris. Sent by Henry Plantagenet to arrange the marriage of Henry's three-year-old son, forever to be known as Young Henry, to Louis Capet's newest baby girl, named Marguerite. Thomas was preceded by a fantastical parade of several hundred marchers with their flags, caps, and curled slippers, accompanied by horns, drums, greyhounds, tethered hawks, monkeys, giant wagons, sunlight flashing on gold. Forty draft horses the size of tractors, mastiffs, kegs of beer, and knights on horseback tossing silver coins. Even today, such a spectacle would bring people to the streets, and Parisians of 1158 had never seen anything like it. Their excitement had to swell into awe when they realized the potentate bringing up the rear, Thomas Becket, was no king but simply the envoy of what had to be an incredible king. It may well have been the greatest single moment in Thomas's colorful life. Louis Capet was as bedazzled as his subjects. There was no end to what the two sides did to demonstrate their mutual esteem during Thomas's visit. Louis gave a splendid banquet for his guests. Thomas gave one even more glorious. Supposedly spending a normal man's annual income on a single heaping platter of that beloved medieval delicacy, eels. Louis closed the markets in Paris to prevent his English guests from any need to spend their own money. Thomas pressed gifts on everyone he met, from bowls of his English ale to greyhounds, silver candlesticks, books, cloaks, and always popular gold coins. English students in the city enjoyed particular largesse from this former compatriot. How anyone found the time to discuss business is unclear, but by the time Louis waved goodbye to his fantastic new friend, little Princess Marguerite of France was betrothed to Prince Henry of England. Nor was this the only piece of great good luck to fall into Henry Plantagenet's hands that summer. Not long after Thomas Beckett had become the daily talk of Paris, Henry's younger brother Geoffrey died of causes unknown to us, only 24 years old. Hot-headed, rebellious, ambitious, jealous, Geoffrey had been a repeated thorn in his older brother's side. Some years before, he had even made that failed attempt to snatch newly divorced Eleanor up for himself. Now in death, he suddenly became valuable. Two years before he departed this earth, he had become the Count of Nantes, probably thanks to Henry's potent influence. The title was an old one, settled in the leading city of ferociously independent Brittany, that sea-laved land of mist and storm far to the north and west of Paris. The Bretons had never much liked the Normans and vice versa, but Henry had been in a position to help resolve a local civil war when the citizens petitioned his advice as to a new ruler. The king probably was the one who suggested that his dear brother would be an ideal choice. Now that Geoffrey was dead, Henry pounced to add the Nantes title to the Plantagenet roster putting himself in position to absorb the entire country. Freed of that strategic detail, Henry arrived on the continental coast late in the summer to negotiate the details of Princess Marguerite's marriage to his son. He settled in Gisors, that old town with its ugly castle and revered ancient elm, located in the Vexin, the age-old border zone between the Normans and the French. For generations, the territory had been split between the two sides. But back when Henry's father, La Belle, had wanted to bolster his son's accession to the Norman dukedom, he'd given up his Vexen rights to Louis Capet. Henry, rapacious Henry, had always wanted it back. At the Gisors bargaining table, leaning into his meeting with Louis, Henry suggested that Marguerite come to her eventual marriage, bearing the Vexen as part of her dowry. Marguerite was barely teething and wouldn't actually be married for years yet, years during which Henry proposed that France could retain control of the territory, with the Knights Templar as trustees of the arrangement. Louis, fresh from the pleasures of Thomas Becket's lavish stay, affably agreed nor was Henry entirely done. He mentioned that the Plantagenets would, naturally, inherit Nantes from his sadly deceased brother, a scenario which, at least in Henry's mind, put the family squarely in the way of becoming dukes of all of Brittany. The French had been pushed out back in the 800s, so Louis, who had no real control of the region in any case, had no objection and Henry was able to slap yet another title and another piece of valuable property onto the family rolls. Henry was still obliged to go to Paris to get the royal baby so that she could, as was the custom, be taken to his court to be raised. It might be remembered that his own mother Matilda had been raised by the Germans in advance of her marriage to their emperor. Unlike his chancellor, Henry made an almost humble appearance in the city, one he hadn't seen since the days when he and Eleanor of Aquitaine had first laid eyes on each other. He toured churches with Louis, handing out fistfuls of alms, no doubt chafing for the chance to get back on the road. But he met an unaccustomed obstacle. Louis refused to let his baby daughter leave. Louis' unspoken objection was undoubtedly the woman who loomed over his life. Impious, scandalous, lamentably powerful, and audacious Eleanor. Henry may have been ruffled by this snag, but he was a resourceful man. His chief justiciar for Normandy was a gentleman named Robert of Newburgh, whose family lands were near the French-Norman border. Honest, trusted, responsible. Newburgh was accepted by the French as a guardian for the little princess, who left her parents at the age of some fourteen months to be raised by strangers, simply because such was tradition. As for Louis, invited to tour the whole of Normandy, he was entirely d'accord with the remarkable Henry Plantagenet. In a grand display of hospitality, Henry even gave up his palace in Rouen to better accommodate his liege lord the two ended by dining affably together at the shrine of the Archangel Michael, that sea-washed mountain monastery we know as Mont-Saint-Michel. Louis was soon telling anyone who would listen that the King of England was the most lovable individual he had ever known. This lovable individual, meanwhile, had managed in the course of a single autumn to gain Nantes, a first-tier claim to Brittany, and a French princess who would bring Henry the Vexen, and a Plantagenet shot at the French crown. It was as if he were Europe's magnetic center, other men mere steel shavings looking for their lodestone. Eleanor, newly delivered of another son, named Geoffrey after his paternal grandfather, chose this happy time to raise an ambition of her own, to lose. It might be dimly recalled that her own grandmother Philippa had gone to war to hold her inheritance in Toulouse, one of the dominant powers south of the Aquitaine. Philippa won her war against her cousin, but her body husband, Eleanor's grandfather, William IX of Aquitaine, was less thoughtful. He mortgaged it off to help finance his crusading, and the Dukes of Aquitaine never did regain control of the territory. Instead, it passed to the Saint-Gilles family, which could almost match title for title against the Dukes of Aquitaine. Wealthy, educated, highly cultured, veterans of the Great First Crusade, contenders for the throne of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and founders of the county of Tripoli in the Outremer. They were a powerhouse in their part of the world. More than a dozen lesser barons paid them homage, They had also long favored an alliance with the King of France, looking for a counterweight against their avaricious Plantagenet neighbor. Louis Capet's sister had married the current Count, Raymond V, and had provided him several sons to ensure the steady continuation of the St. Gilles succession. Plantagenet interest in getting Toulouse back at this point would be roughly equivalent to Great Britain deciding, circa 1825, that it really felt the United States should return New England. Egged on by hawkish Becket, Henry quickly warmed to the idea. He sent a formal notice to Count Raymond that the Count was to relinquish his title to Eleanor forthwith. After what must have been that first startled moment of gaping at the courier, Raymond essentially spat on the demand, while sending word to Louis that he was going to need some help holding off the same man who'd so recently dined with Louis at Mont Saint-Michel. Raymond was right. Henry sent out war summons to vassals in every part of his considerable holdings, not to mention assessing war taxes on everyone from merchants to monks. The array of soldiery committed to serve Henry Plantagenet in war was truly spectacular as many as five thousand knights owed him service, which meant that Henry could have filled half the knightly ranks of the Second Crusade by himself. Nor was he shy of other allies, who joined him as he gathered his forces in Poitiers. Henry's chancellor, Thomas Becket arrived with his own army, said to number seven hundred knights and a thousand horses. King Malcolm of Scotland needed more than 40 ships to carry his troops across the channel. Barons with their archers, their foot soldiers, their mercenaries, and their own knights arrived from every corner of the Plantagenet Empire, including some Toulousean vassals who were tired of Count Raymond. Fueled by a river of tax revenue, the greatest army on European soil since the Second Crusade set off, Flags flying to take down the Count of Toulouse. It does rather seem, from this remove, like a very large cannon pointed at a rather small haystack. Although Henry and Eleanor both must have been thrilled to see what they were capable of. Controlling an empire was delightful indeed. There was just one problem with Henry's splendid army headed off to besiege Toulouse it failed. Henry was brilliant at the thrusting attack, the lightning-quick defense. His skill at taking fortifications thought impregnable, often in mere days, was considered almost beyond belief. For some reason, though, he soon lost interest in Toulouse, possibly because the place kept holding out, thus turning a military siege into a civil engineering job, one which required steadiness, calm, attention to detail, and virtually limitless patience, arguably the qualities Henry did not possess. There might be excitement if attackers tunneling under a wall ran into counterminers coming the other way. But otherwise, this fight soon offered Henry little besides sweltering boredom under the summer sunblast of that semi-tropical land. Day after day spent watching siege machinery target the city's walls, He turned the army over to Beckett, escaping the drudgery of it all. More weeks passed, very slowly. Men got sick from bad food, bad water, and bad hygiene. Thousands of horses ate everything that could be grazed for miles. The occasional arrow, launched by a defender every bit as bored as the besiegers, took out an eye here or a knee there. It got hotter. Food got shorter. Water got fouler. Toulouse arrogantly held. Then, in September, the King of France, who had unsuccessfully attempted to mediate the situation earlier in the summer, broke the monotony by arriving with a small personal retinue rather than an army. His request was modest. He asked only if he could be permitted to enter the city gates to see his sister. Denying him would have been profoundly unchivalrous. Henry signaled approval. The King of England had just been neatly trapped. If he continued to batter the city with his own liege lord inside, he risked war with France. Not to mention a reputation as an insolent, murderous vassal. Never mind that Henry was entirely insolent whenever it suited him. Besieging a city with its king inside, sent a rather dubious message to restless vassals of his own. Within a week, despite his chancellor's vehement objections, Henry announced that his reverence for the French monarch precluded any further attacks, and ordered his army to depart, having spent a fortune of his own and of many, many others to accomplish nothing whatever. For the first time, Henry had been stopped in his tracks. To add insult to injury, he had been stopped by Louis Capet, who stymied Henry's desire for a piece of property that would have pushed his borders all the way to the Mediterranean, not to mention fulfilling an Aquitanian ambition that went back the better part of a century. Henry may have soothed his chafed nerves by grabbing the town of Cahors as he headed to the coast, but the campaign's drab conclusion apparently caused the first significant rift between king and chancellor. It's said that the two quarreled publicly, with Henry pinning the blame for this humiliating, expensive failure to his chief advisor's chest. Eleanor, serving as regent in England, must have been delighted at the news. She had always disliked her husband's favorite. Henry swept off to England in a Plantagenet rage, while Becket directed his own fury at attacking local castles. Indeed, he proved quite good at it, capturing three major fortresses and reportedly unhorsing a French knight in hand to hand combat, no minor feat. This certainly wasn't the era of the saintly Thomas of legend, since more than one observer described Becket's grip on the conquered countryside as brutal. When the two next met, king and his chancellor, this cloud on their perfect amity would seemingly be forgotten. After all, as this king's secretary, Peter of Blois, said, once the king formed an attachment to a man, he rarely gave him up. As for Henry and Eleanor, this queen whose ambition had seated the idea of Toulouse, this Christmas season did not see the Queen of England pregnant. After five pregnancies and six years of marriage to Henry, she would not be pregnant again for three years. The year after the unsatisfactory end to the Siege of Toulouse, Henry felt compelled to rush his daughter, three-and-a-half-year-old Matilda, to Normandy. Louis Capet's second wife was expected to deliver their second child. Everyone believed that Louis, who had fathered nothing but girls in fifteen years of marriage to two women, had to be due for a son at last, and Henry was determined that any Capetian prince who might be born was going to marry his Plantagenet princess. But Louis' new baby was another girl, the fourth in the Capetian line, each one less valuable than the one before. The birth was depressing for another reason. It caused the quick childbed death of Louis's unfortunate queen, a sweet girl not yet out of her teens. Louis was now forty. Time was racing, each year piling more risk on the bent frame of the Capetian succession. Within weeks of the prior queen's funeral, the French king married for the third time. The new twenty-year-old queen was named Adèle, She was of the House of Blois-Champagne, which Louis had once viciously fought in the war capped by the disaster at Vitry. Now, the Blois family settled itself quite happily on the cushions of the Capetian throne. Henry Plantagenet took note of this new dynastic turn, since his predecessor King Stephen, he of the Anarchy, was also of the House of Blois. Despite all the turbulence of Stephen's unhappy reign, there still were people who had liked him better than they liked the Plantagenets. The unthinkable had to be considered. A little princely son of this new French queen could be a formidable rival, if not to Henry, then to Henry's boys. Henry had never lacked penetrating intelligence. He immediately played the one card he held, two-year-old Prince Marguerite of France, already betrothed to his son Prince Henry, aged five. Her guardian, Robert of Newburgh, was ordered to hustle her to Rouen so the toddlers might make their marriage official. The bridal couple was so young that special dispensations had to be sought from the church. Most conveniently, the church in turn needed something from Henry. There were two rival candidates for the papacy, which was vacant again, and Henry agreed to publicly support the future Alexander III in return for Rome sanctioning this marriage. The idea of tiny children lisping their wedding vows might hold some rueful charm, but as the king of France was not informed of the ceremony until after it was over, he was unable to share in the pleasure of the moment. The ink had barely dried on the marriage documents before Henry claimed the little princess's dowry, the Vexen, dutifully turned over to him by its guardians, the Knights Templar. The French, who didn't expect Marguerite to be married for a decade at least, had just been coolly stripped of control of a very desirable piece of property. And just as quickly, Henry was busily about the job of fortifying castles across the Vexen's countryside. Outmaneuvered and outclassed this round, Louis would have to concede that the King of England now had possession of the coveted Vexen. He vented his own frustration by furiously ordering every Templar out of Paris. Henry Plantagenet had risen above the embarrassing failure at Toulouse. He was again entirely in command of his world. Having backed out of serious war with France over Toulouse, winning the Vexen without firing a shot, his empire basked in unaccustomed peace. Even his audacious goal of tying the Plantagenets to the Capets had been accomplished. As 1160 dawned, Henry and Eleanor, who had lost their first baby, little William, had three healthy sons, young Henry, Richard, and newest baby Jeffrey, aged 5, 2, and 15 months. Their four-year-old daughter Matilda would be a rich, rich prize for the right partner one day. The family was powerful, energetic, and smart, wealthy, respected, admired, catered to. Henry now had the time to rebuild old timber towers and city walls with fashionable stone, to encourage new bridges and roads, to add acquisitions to his library, to grant alms to churches, and encourage lucrative market fairs across Plantagenet territories. Proud citizens watched Henry's massive projects to modernize the great royal castles, remaking them into imperial symbols of the highest order. Rouen, Scarborough, Dover, Cannes, Tours, Argentan, Newcastle, Chignon would be tremendous fortresses, things that could only be designed, built, and maintained by the richest, most confident, and most commanding man in Western Europe. Henry also gained another splendid opportunity not entirely unexpected. Theobald, the Archbishop of Canterbury, died in the spring of 1161. He was in his early 70s and had been archbishop for more than 20 years. Notoriously unsentimental Henry and Eleanor owed the old man an incalculable debt. Theobald truly had helped make Henry Plantagenet the King of England. Theobald had been King Stephen's archbishop too. But had treated Stephen with considerable independence of thought and will. He had refused to consecrate Stephen's son Eustace as the heir to the throne, and then, when Eustace died, had backed Henry as Stephen's successor. When Stephen died, Theobald served as regent, holding a broken country together while Henry stalked the beach at Normandy for four weeks, and cursed the weather that kept him on the wrong side of the channel. Once Henry had at last reached London, Theobald crowned Henry and Eleanor rulers of England, as archbishops of Canterbury had done since ancient days. And he had put brilliant Thomas Becket squarely in front of Henry for the job of chancellor. Now, the old archbishop was gone and Canterbury the richest, most powerful, and most esteemed religious office in the Plantagenet Empire was vacant. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge, adapted for us by the author Karen Markle Knapp. Thank you to Frances Butt for voicing our introduction and Eleanor herself. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again March 18th for the next episode of Lion's Forge. Available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts, including on YouTube with video episode trailers. Visit us on Facebook where you can ask questions, leave reviews, and interact with me. Until next time, thank you for listening.